Good morning. Come on up here. You're doing great. Where's Wade and Rogan? You're in. There they are. That's. Come on up here. Good to see you. Hey, hey, hey. Come on up here right where we can see you. Ooh, hey, come on over here. This is good. I like it. I've invited uh, two of our fifth graders and two of our not fifth graders. Okay, Wade and Rogan Merritt and Zoe and Tatiana Ballard to, to come and share with us this morning. They're going to be reading the scripture and, uh, and uh, sharing a little wisdom and insight here as we begin. I'm, I'm so pleased to have their families in my life. Both uh, of their parents uh, are members of my Just Right Why Not group, and I've had years of enjoying the journey of faith with their parents. And I know they love the Lord, and I know they love their kids. And uh, so it's always a joy to have them up here. The, uh, Zoe and, and uh, Wade will be going on to middle school. Uh, okay. In fact, many of our fifth graders in the room this morning, this is their last Sunday as technically part of our children's ministry. Next Sunday, we're going to do Promotion Sunday. We're going to recognize our fifth graders in a very special way during the service. And uh, we're looking forward to that time next Sunday and hope that you'll join us for that. Okay. So here's the wisdom I needed. I'll just step right here and, and tell me, given the choice of being deaf or blind all your life, which one did you pick? Deaf. 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 How come? Because I'm also needing my eyesight to see. All right. Deaf or blind? What do you think, ladies? You, you say Deaf. Yeah, I heard that. Okay, all right, good. So if it had to be one or the other, probably I'll, I pick deaf because I want to see. Is that what you had? Okay, now, let's pretend, let's imagine that you've been blind. See, I'm picking the bun you don't want. <laughs> that you've been blind all of your lives, all of your 11 years there, Zoe and, and Wade. And, but this morning, all of a sudden, you've been miraculously healed, and you're seeing for the very first time. This is the first time you're seeing your mom and dad. This is the first time you're seeing your... What would that be like? It would be amazing. Yeah? How come? Because you finally get to see what your mom and dad looks like. What do you think? What he said. <laughs> wow. Don't you usually experience it the other way around? <laughs> what she said. What do you think, Tatiana? What would it be like to see your mom and dad for the very first time? That'd be good. Huh? What do you think there, brother? Surprising. Surprising. Would you be excited? Yeah. Yeah, you would, wouldn't you? Well, this morning I've asked you to read some scripture out of Psalm 32 that talks a little bit about a time when David says, man, was I blind, so to speak, but I know how incredible it is to see. And so each of you is going to read a portion of the scripture. And I, I think, Wade, we're starting with you. Is that correct? So why don't you step right over here and we'll. And you read that for us, please. Come on over here. 
that, that'll work too. That'll, you, you want to be able to dance while you read the script. Okay. Okay. Then I ignore. Great, thank you, Rogan. Great, and then Zoe, thank you. Thank you. I so love it when children read the scripture for us. Thank you. All right, Brian? Okay. And again, thank you, Mom and Dad, for making God and the scripture a priority in their lives. It was not a hard task to get them to read. They did it with, with great anticipation. Thank you for that. I, I missed you all last week. My wife and I were in Seattle visiting my, my parents and family, but we were up, well, I was up promptly at 7 o'clock Seattle time to watch you all on Facebook Live. And it was, it was incredible to be able to share with you even a few thousand miles and many hours away uh, as you worship and share together in this place. This morning was a little odd for me getting, I need a bigger ear Okay, because I got here this morning and I put on the headset, which goes over my ear. And I put on my glasses, which go over my ears. And, and I got a hearing aid that had to go over my ear. And, and there's just all kinds of stuff piled up on this ear. But it's all working together good. Hey, I've entitled this message, Whatever Happened to Guilt? And, and I want us to take a look at uh, six different items as we wander through Psalm 32 uh, in, a, in a good, measured, but uh, pretty quick pace. I want us to look at the extraordinary blessings of forgiven sin, uh, to consider the agonizing burden of hidden, unconfessed sin, to recognize the surprising benefit of guilt, the restoring beauty of confession, and the choice between being sheltered and being stubborn. And then we'll just wrap up with the bottom line of Psalm 32. Would you join me as we pray this morning? Father, uh, we prayed early this morning, the worship team and some of us that were gathered, and just asked that this place would be filled with your presence, and it is, and it has been, and it will be, and that you would, uh, you would convey what you wanted uh, to be given to each of us individually through the music and through the scripture reading and through the sharing of the word. Please do that. We entrust ourselves to you. In your name, Jesus, amen. The extraordinary blessing of forgiven sin. I asked the kids, which would you rather be? And then we talked about them being blind and what, what an incredible experience it would be to, having been blind, to wake up and see. But you know, I bet none of you woke up this morning amazed that you could see. 
I doubt very many of you rolled out of bed this morning and said, thank you, Lord, that I have my sight. Because we just take it for granted. It's just there. But it's a miracle. It's incredible. It's awesome. It's a gift from God. It is an extraordinary blessing of sight. Well, David is talking about the extraordinary blessing of forgiven sin. Beginning in verse 1, perhaps you'd want to read with me of Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. We ran across those words blessed a few weeks ago when we were doing the message out of Psalm 1. Blessed, happy, enviable, successful is the person, well, who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly or in the way of sinners or sits with scoffers. But what happens when we do? And we all do. And David says, there's another way to get a blessing. It's the blessing of forgiven sin. And David knew all about sin. David had significant seasons in his life uh, of sin, and he also had a great opportunity to know the blessedness of this in his own life. Some believe that Psalm 32 was written chronologically after Psalm 51. And if you were to make a note in your, in your notes there to go home and read Psalm 51, Psalm 51 is the psalm of David where he confesses his sin with Bathsheba, the sin of adultery and the sin of murdering her husband Uriah. And it's an incredibly moving message about, uh, about the conviction of sin and the, and the beauty of forgiveness, but he ends that by saying, and I'm going to teach others. And some believe that Psalm 32 is part of that teaching, that he's going to teach us about the extraordinary blessing of forgiven sin. He uses three words in those first couple of verses to describe what we just kind of lump together in the English as sin. He says there's transgression. Blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven. Transgression is rebellion. Transgression is refusing to submit to the rightful authority and limits that God has established in our life for our good and for society's benefits. It's rolling up to the red light, and you're going, red lights aren't established by God. Yes, they are. <laughs> it's rolling up to the red light at Golfway in Alafaya at 7 o'clock in the morning where you're the only one there, and there's no one to trip the light for you. And you sit, and you sit, and at some point you go, stink, and you just run the red light. <laughs> Ashley, you paying attention? Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> but that's a transgression. That's when I know it's wrong, but in the moment, I just choose to do it, and I justify it 10 or 12 different ways. He says, blessed is the man whose transgressions, those intentional moments when we say, I know, but I'm going to do it anyhow, whose sin is forgiven. Now, now sin, it, it can be much more unintentional. It's, it's literally just missing the mark. It's falling short of the standard, the mark that God has set for you and I to achieve. What is that mark? Well, it would be perfection. How often do you fall short of perfection? Well, all that you did well this morning, falling short of perfection. If you got angry at your children, you fell short of perfection. If you ran the red light, you fell short of perfection. It's not so much I know, but I'm going to do it anyhow. Sometimes it's just 
I just don't get there. I fall short. I, my righteousness even isn't good enough. And he says, whose iniquity is not counted against him. Iniquity is, is probably the, the most intense of the three words. Sin is I'm falling short of the mark. Transgression is I know what the mark is, but I'm going you know, to cross it anyhow. Iniquity is bent and twisted. The Hebrew word says it's a behavior that is premeditated, continuing, and escalating. Uh, Micah, the prophet Micah describes it this way in Micah 2.1. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil in their beds. At morning's light, they carry it out because it is in their power to do so. So sometimes I just miss the mark. Sometimes I see the line and I intentionally cross it. And there are some times when I just stink in my thinking. I actually plot a way to do something bad. It doesn't surprise me and I have to make a choice. I've decided to do it. And David says, for all of those. And boy, that just about covers everybody in the room, doesn't it? All of us have fallen short. Probably all of us have come up to the line and crossed it on purpose. And some of us are busy thinking about bad things to do. And David says, and you know what? For all of those, here's what God does. He forgives. He forgives transgression. What's forgive mean? Forgive means like he, he bears it, he carries off, he lifts the burden off of you. The burden of guilt and sin is on me for, my, for what I have done, and, and God lifts it off. And David says, man, that feels good. That is incredible. He says, what, to, what does he do? Else does he do with sin? He covers it. It becomes out of sight. You can't see it anymore because God covers the sin. And he does not impute. He doesn't count it against you. I imagine David was thinking of the Old Testament rituals on the Day of Atonement. Leviticus 19, or Leviticus 16 talks all about the Day of Atonement, that one day of year when the nation of Israel would gather, the high priest would do all the sequential things he was to, to do to prepare himself to go from the outer court into the holy place, into the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant and the presence of God existed, to atone for the sins of the entire nation. And the instruction given in Leviticus, and there's a whole bunch of it, but I imagine David might have been thinking about the two goats. The high priest was to select two goats, and by lot, one was picked to be the sacrifice. And that goat was sacrificed, and the blood was taken by the high priest into the Holy of Holies, and the sins of the people were, so to speak, placed on the Ark of the Covenant, and then the blood was sprinkled over it as a covering over those sins. The other goat... He would go out and it would stay alive, but he would put his hands on the head of the goat and start confessing the sins of the entire nation, which I'm not sure how they got that done all at once, okay? But he's confessing all the sins of the entire nation for that year and putting them on that goat. And then they take the goat and they let it out to a solitary place in the desert and just let it go. And that was symbolic of the sins of the people were being taken out of the camp and away, not counted against them, but carried off. 
They did that every year. The glory of being a Christian is we don't have to do that ever again. When Jesus died on the cross, he became the ultimate blood sacrifice that covered our sins. He became the ultimate scapegoat. When Jesus was on the cross, all of my sin and all of your sin was placed on his body to bear, and it was taken away. And that's the incredible, the incredible joy of being a Christian once for all, for all people, the scapegoat for our sins, the blood atonement for our skin, sins, and not only is our sin not counted against us, but Paul, the apostle, actually quotes this psalm in Romans 4, 5, and 8 when he says, not only are your sins not counted against you, but you actually get righteousness in their place. And it's not because of anything you've done. It's the work of Jesus Christ. The extraordinary blessing of forgiven sin, which probably, like being blind and then seeing, or never being blind and just taking it for granted, David says, it, you know why it's such an extraordinary blessing to me? Because I know the agonizing burden of hidden, unconfessed sin. The verses there, in picking up the last part of verse 2, and in whose spirit is no deceit, when I kept silent, David says, you know, can I just be real honest with you? He says, there was moments when I was a liar, when I had deceit. It's not that I just, it's not that I was silent, you know, or that I happened to be silent. I chose to be silent. God, I'm not going to talk to you about this. I'm not going to talk to anybody about this. And he's, David says, you know what? Sin changes you. Sin causes you and me to become dishonest. David was totally different after Bathsheba and Uriah. The man who loved God and was open and transparent and available all of a sudden became closed and, and in his castle and, and concerned about what was going on. It changed him and became dishonest. We, we lie. When you and I hold on to sin, when we are under the burden of unconfessed, we try to hide our sin, it creates barriers. It creates barriers to others because we lie to each other. The children in the room might recognize this. Did you take the cookie? No. Did you hit your sister? No. Are you lying to me? No. But it's not just the children, is it? We do that to others all the time. We lie to ourselves. I'm better than most. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I do drive through red lights, and I do get angry with my... But I'm better than most. And, and really, driving through the red light when there's nobody in sight is really not all that bad. And no one is getting hurt. And see, I, I, can, I can justify it. I can rationalize. I don't have to take this very seriously because I lie to my... We lie to God. God, I didn't do that, God. As if God can't see. 
I didn't really mean to do it. No, God knows the hearts and the motivation of all of us. He knows exactly why we do what we do. We lie to others, it creates a barrier. We lie to ourselves, it creates a barrier. We lie to God, it creates a barrier. Sin creates barriers. The Holy Spirit is busy convicting of sin. We're busy compromising. The Holy Spirit says, you did this, Jim, and I say, I can't help it. This is the way you made me. Of course I'm tempted. Of course I look at pornography because you made me a lustful man. It's not my fault. It's the way you made me. The Holy Spirit convicts and says, you're not, you're not living to the standard that I have for you that would benefit you and grow you. And we say, well, I'm not Jesus. I'm just human, as if that's a qualifying excuse. And it, we even then tell the Holy Spirit and remind, and did I, do I need to remind you I'm not as bad as the other people? And sin's not always about what we do. Sometimes it's about what we don't do. If God directs you and you don't do it, that's missing the mark, that's transgression, that's sin. To not love my wife is sin. Oh, it's inconvenient and it creates turmoil and it does all that. But bottom line, when I don't love my wife, it's sin because God's commanded me to love my wife. When I don't forgive you, it's sin because Christ very clearly instructed us to forgive one another. And what happens when I'm busy hiding and holding and living in this dishonesty? Well, David describes it like this. He says, when I kept silent, verse 3, my bones wasted away and through my groaning all day long for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. David says, when I hid my sin, the hand of God was heavy on me. Charles Spurgeon, the, the great preacher, once said, God's hand is very helpful when it uplifts, but it's awful when it presses down. James tells us that God opposes the proud and lifts up the humble. God opposes the proud. How much energy, how much uh, vitality does it take to push against God? And David says, I can't. It's too big. His hand is on me. I'm groaning. My bones are wasting away. I have no vitality. When was the last time any of us confronted our sin that way? I, I haven't. There's this awareness that David says, you know what I experienced when I was hiding my sin? It was agonizing. It was horrible. It was depleting. Yeah, yeah, I imagine that's why forgiveness is such an incredible thing to him. The surprising benefit of guilt, because David's talking about being under the burden of guilt. And I'm just going to tell you that there's two kinds of guilt. Let's just clarify that before we talk about the benefit of guilt. Okay, there is True guilt and false guilt. True guilt is the burden and the heaviness that accompanies my sin. I did it. I ought to feel guilty. I ran the red light. You know, seriously, I didn't run the red light. Don't, don't be reporting me. Okay. But if I ran the red light, okay, I'm guilty. I may have gotten away with it, but I'm guilty. 
and I should feel some amount of guilt. Different than false guilt. False guilt is, is a guilt kind of sensation that others put on you or that I put on myself uh, that's condemning for something that, you know, it's, it's about something I did not do. For instance, it's all my fault my son became a tattoo artist. No, it's not. It's all my fault that my children got divorced. No, it's not. It's all my fault that my child only got a D in science. Well, maybe that's your fault. <laughs> but let's, let's distinguish. False guilt is, is from the enemy. True guilt about what I have done, true guilt, the misery of true guilt is a good thing. No, no, Jim, it feels bad. I don't like it. Yeah, that's the point. The misery of true guilt is a good thing. It demonstrates that you and I are, in fact, children of God and that our God will not allow us to remain comfortable in our habitual or unconfessed sin. He just loves us too much. And so he's going to make you miserable. The hand of God is going to press upon you and me. Now, we may escape it and run it, and, but the hand of God is going to press upon you if you are a child of God and if you and I continue in sin because he loves us too much to leave us that way. The convicting work of the Holy Spirit, as evidenced by true guilt, is evidence of those who truly belong to God. If you and I really, really, really belong to God, there ought to be seasons when we are just absolutely miserable in our sin. Isn't it great to be a Christian? But that's the only way you'll ever, you and I will ever understand and appreciate the extraordinary beauty of forgiveness. Guilt convinces us that we're hopelessly at the bottom and we need to look up. The burden of guilt should drive us to seek the blessings of forgiving, forgiveness that David talks about. And you know, until you and I, until you and I feel the burden of guilt, there will be very little appreciation for the mercy of forgiveness. The cross will become easy to us. Jesus, Jesus was once anointed by a woman who was of ill repute, and men commented, those men, ju judging men, commented about what a horrible thing she had done, and Jesus just made a really simple comment. He said, what she's done demonstrates great love, and you know what? Those who have been forgiven much love much. And then I imagine he just looked around the room and said, and you don't love much because you don't understand forgiveness. Guilt helps us to understand that. John MacArthur says, the first step towards a genuine spiritual health is to recognize your sinfulness. Guilt relentlessly will motivate us to confess. And there's a restoring beauty that comes from confession. In verses 5 through 7, David says, after talking about how agonizingly horrible that moment was, he says, then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. I will confess to the Lord. David really had two problems. He had the sin he had committed, there's a whole bunch of them, but let's take David and Bathsheba and Uriah. There was the adultery and the murder. There was the sin he had committed, but the double life that he was living to hide his sin was making his life miserable too. And confession was the only solution. 
Forgiveness, David says, forgiveness was ready and waiting. Just like the, just like the story of the prodigal son Jesus told. Okay? The prodigal son came home after being in misery, the agonizing burden of, of his unconfessed state. He came home and not realizing but experiencing that forgiveness was immediately available. His dad ran to him and forgave him. But David only experienced it when he agreed with God about the nature and guilt of his sin. Restoration, David says, restoration of my relationship with God, of my interaction because I was busy hiding from him. Restoration was immediately available, just like it was with the prodigal son. But he needed to confess it. He needed to own it. David knew what it was like to be under the great waters, he says in verses 6 and 7, therefore let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. David says, I understand what it is to be overwhelmed by the waters of unconfessed guilt of unconfessed sin. I understand what it's like to be bogged down and mired in guilt and misery, but I also know the experience that, that, when, that God could be found and that God could deliver in the crisis. And in, this, in the portion of just a few verses, he goes from, God's hand was heavy upon me, and then I confessed... And now he is my hiding place and my shelter and my protection. All through the mechanism. That's what honest confession and full forgiveness does. And I appreciate when Arthur last week talked about the psalm and said, look, there's the gospel in this psalm. Look, there's the gospel in this psalm too. Genuine, real, deep, broken-hearted tears flowing, humble confession has been a feature of every genuine revival for the last 250 years. Go back and read your church history. All of the great revivals all started with this overwhelming misery of unconfessed sin and this glorious confession. Nothing new. You go back to the book of Acts, Acts 19, in the church in Ephesus, it's recorded that many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. And in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. This wasn't the heathens. This was Christians confessing their sins publicly, which is what we're going to do at the end of the service. Aren't you excited? Okay, maybe not. But confession was the beginning even in acts of the spread, the rapid spread of the gospel. The choice between sheltered and stubborn. David says, don't think this was easy. Don't think this was easy. Verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. Now he's speaking on behalf of God. So hear this from God's lips. God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and, and watch over you. God really, really, really wants to instruct and counsel and lead us. He says, I will watch over you. Okay? Uh, do not be like the horse and the mule, which have no understanding. 
but must be bridled or be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, for the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. God wants to instruct, protect, but sometimes we're just like dumb animals. David said, I was like a dumb animal. It, when I sinned, it took tragedy. God had to send defeat in war, and he had to send Nathan, the prophet Nathan, for the shocking confrontation that's recorded in 2 Samuel 12 too. David had lived in this state of unconfessed sin with a barrier between him and others, a barrier between him and God. And Nathan shows up one day. God sends Nathan the prophet. And Nathan tells David a story. He says there's this man who had a whole flock of sheep. They were his sheep. It was a great flock. But there was a poor man that lived next door that had one little lamb. And the man who wanted all, had all of them decided he wanted that lamb right there. And so he went over and took the lamb. So what do you think I ought to do, David? And David got all enraged and he said, you ought to get that man, bring him to me, and we're going to punish him. And Nathan just said, you're the man. Wow. And from that comes Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. Bottom line. Let me be your Nathan today. Let's call sin, sin. Don't explain it away. Don't blame it on your family. Don't blame it on others. Don't excuse it as weakness or just human nature. Let's call sin, sin. And sin is serious. Because your sin and my sin put Jesus on the cross Sin has always caused damage to the name of Christ, to others in his church, to you. Sin always erects barriers between us and God and between us and our fellow human beings. And sin is not just what you do, it's also what we don't do that God has asked us to do. Maybe some here this morning are tormented by true guilt. To that I say good. No, no. Being a Christian is all about joy and happy and loving. Yeah, it is. But you and I can't appreciate that or experience that until we get down into the pit of and the misery of true guilt. So if you're in misery and torment this morning about true guilt, about sin in your life that has not been acknowledged and confessed, good. Perhaps no one else knows about your sin. And although you're trying to put up a big front and a good front, deep inside you know there's a, there's a deep trouble. Don't shut it off. Don't explain it away. Let it drive you to the cross. If, now we're changing, if heartfelt confession and and Charles Spurgeon described it as, you know, tears and very emotional. But it's not going to be that way for all of us. You know, as we end the service, I, I, I don't expect there's going to be a mass rush of people to the front. You know, sometimes I think this is just going to be when I'm sitting at home this afternoon and I come under great conviction. But if heartfelt confession 
is never a part of my life or your life because you are never burdened by guilt, you never groan about it, and you never feel the hand of the Lord upon you, it's probably time to evaluate your relationship with God because God will put the heavy hand on you and me so that hidden, unconfessed sin will finally bring us to the point of the good element of guilt that says, I must confess. And with confession, we go from under the heavy hand of God into the arms of God, and we end up saying, blessed are those whose sins are forgiven. Hopefully, this morning, as my friend Tim Hodgson in Seattle would say, I put a little rock in your shoe. Next Sunday, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper together. I think the next seven days as you walk with the rock in your shoe might be a good time to examine ourselves before we sit at his table together. David ends the psalm like this. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all of you who are upright in heart. Blessed are you if your sin is forgiven and you ought to come rejoicing, and you ought to come with thanksgiving, and if you and I don't, maybe it's because we just haven't been miserable enough this week. Why don't you stand together with me, please, and I'm going to pray you have a miserable week. (laughs) You pray with me. Father God, You sent Jesus to die. I know it. I preach it. I share it. But Lord, I don't know that I always embrace the deep wonder of it. I'm not sure many of us in this room do. And that's not a condemnation on us, Lord, that's a confession that says, if we gathered every Sunday in your presence to tell each other what incredible things God forgave us of this week, oh, his mercy, your mercy was awesome. These were the things I did, the things I thought, the things I didn't do, and and I'm blessed because God has lifted those and covered those and does not count them against me through Jesus Christ. Let's worship Jesus. So Lord, if we all need to be miserable this week, if we all need to feel your hand upon us so there's moments when there is no way to look but up, if we need to be struck blind, so to speak, so that we can embrace and and be thankful and grateful for the gift of sight, then you do that. Because we are the man, and we are the woman, and you are ready to forgive and ready to restore. You just say, come, confess it to me. So help us do that, Jesus. It's in your name we pray.